Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello and welcome to Philia Podcasts, building sisterhood and solidarity, amplifying the voices of women and defending women's human rights. I'm Pippa Bannum, trainee solicitor at Suffolk Law Centre, and I am absolutely delighted to have with me today Harriet Wistrick, founder and director of the Centre for Women's Justice. Welcome, Harriet, and thank you so much for sharing your time so generously with us at Philia. Lovely to join you, and uh, Philia is a great organisation, so really happy to uh, input in any way. Thank you. Thank you very much. So first, um, a short intro about you, Harriet, um, actually, who you don't really need very much introduction because you're so very well known. But um, just to let everybody know, um, you're a solicitor of 25 years experience who worked for many years with a renowned uh, civil liberties firm, Bernberg Pierce Limited. Uh, she's the winner of Liberty Human Rights Lawyer of the Year Award 2014, Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year for 2018 for Public Law, and the Law Society Gazette Personality of the Year 2019. Um, Harriet has worked on many high-profile cases around violence against women, including on behalf of women who've challenged the police and parole board in the John Warboys case. Uh, women deceived in relationships by undercover police officers and on behalf of women appealing murder convictions for killing abusive partners, most recently Sally Challen. Um, Harriet is also founder member of the campaign group Justice for Women and trustee of the charity the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize. So um, yeah, quite an impressive roundup there Harriet and we're just scratching the surface. So um, I also I just wanted to mention um, if anyone's uh, listening and is interested, you can learn more about Harriet's life from her first 100 years biography, which celebrates women in law since 1919. So that's also a great listen. But today uh, we are going to be in conversation with Harriet talking about her work at the Centre for Women's Justice, her activism and also her feminist philosophy. So if we could get started um, with the Centre for Women's Justice, can you tell me what prompted you to set it up? and how you managed that process? Yeah, so um, I um, had the idea of something along those lines for really quite a long time. I've been in um, a legal aid, working in a legal practice, legal aid practice for many years. I've always been very much a committed feminist. And so although my uh, area of work was not specific to women, because of my feminism, uh, as I gained more experience, I began to specialise and take cases on that were more specifically around uh, feminist issues. I was, I was working primarily in the field of um, police actions or actions against the police uh, and a little bit of public law. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 but I had also a little sideline in criminal appeals because of my experience of working first on the case of Emma Humphreys and then later um, a, a number of other uh, appeals of women who've been convicted of killing violent partners. But in relation to the police action work, the, you know, the sort of um, work was primarily focused around people being wrongly uh, arrested, um, uh, assaulted or um, sometimes killed by the police and so on. Uh, and that was the sort of main focus of that that police action work but um, 
particularly after the advent of the Human Rights Act, um, there seemed to be ways in which one could help not just people accused of crimes, but also those who were victims of crimes uh, get access to justice. Because of my feminist connections, I had over the years often been approached by women who'd been really badly let down by the police or the Crown Prosecution Service or others, um, and uh, you know had failed to get justice. Uh, you know had failed. You know the police hadn't investigated their cases properly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had been looking into bringing cases uh, or advising them in some way or other, and had found various routes. But um, it was it was pretty pretty difficult to get uh, access to justice for victims. With the with the Human Rights Act, we kind of uh, realize that there may be a way to challenge the much challenged but unsuccessfully challenged idea that police are immune uh, in suit from uh, negligence. So basically, whilst most other state organizations that mess up, uh, you know, seriously mess up and cause damage, you can sue them for negligence. Um, it's always been the case tested to uh, the, the highest courts on a number of occasions that you couldn't sue the police for a negligent investigation. Interestingly enough, the, the big test case around that was also on violence against women. That was the case of the uh, mother of the last victim of the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, oh, okay. who tried mm -hmm. to sue West Yorkshire police for their very, very serious failings. Mm -hmm. but the courts said that you couldn't bring that kind of action. But um, through the Human Rights Act, we were able to find a different route, um, holding the police accountable for their failures. And we did that in the case involving the taxi driver, John Warboys. Yes. Uh, and the, the serious failures in the police to, to investigate uh, a series of complaints they received about his sexual assaults of women. So... In any event, as, as a result of, of that work and, 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 and other cases and one or two other lawyers, it's, it, it seemed to me that there was a place for an organisation that could potentially develop this practice of, um, uh, you know, specialist practice of um, getting justice for, for victims of violence against women and girls and to bring forward strategic litigation. So it was an idea I'd had, I'd tried to get off the ground a few times, but mm -hmm. when you're in um, working as a solicitor, as, as you will no doubt find out, Pippa, if you haven't already, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty much full on all the time. So having time yeah. to set up an organisation is, um, you know, with, with some ambitions like that, is not something that's um, very easy to do. So um, what, what eventually led me to setting up the centre was when I took a three-month sort of sabbatical break in 2015, I did some travelling and I was at that stage, I was thinking about what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to carry on working and where I've been working? Do I want to, you know, I had various different ideas and I, I was travelling with a friend who... Uh, you know, an old friend of mine who who had done some coaching, and she, um, you know, kind of said, "Let's let's let's talk this through, talk through your various ideas." 
and as, as a consequence of those um, conversations together mm-hmm. that um, you know she said you know you've got a very clear idea of this project and really you know whilst you've still got a bit of time off before you go back you should you should do a feasibility study you should should look into whether it's possible to set this up uh, and and she gave me a bit of, of guidance because she's a somebody who who works really in a much more sort of uh, in a different area, not law at all, but one where you kind of think about funding and proposals and so on. And so she gave me some some tips really about how to formulate the idea of of the centre in a in a very clear way. And then uh, you know, uh, and then I went around with the idea that I formulated uh, and spoke to lots of women's organizations just to say um what do you think do you think this would be welcome would i be treading on your toes mm-hmm. and not just women's organizations but some others as well anyway the university people said no this is so needed you know you must you must must do this if you can mm-hmm. so uh in the process of that kind of consultation i spoke to a couple of women who said, look, there's actually a funding, there's a fund at the moment, Bearing Foundation, got this uh, funding called Strengthening the Voluntary Sector, I think. And it sounds like your project idea fits perfectly into that. So I decided that I would try to get some money and talk to the grant giver there and he said it does sound like a really great idea why don't you apply for some seed funding um mm-hmm. so that's what i did and well got- that's yeah that's really interesting because i did want to ask you about you know funding is always the biggie isn't yeah. it and yeah that's yeah it's was it just luck that your idea just fitted with that particular seed funding grant or well i mean it, it obviously it was luck that a couple, that the, that that particular funding grant became available mm-hmm. at the same time as I was yeah. conceptualizing something that was very much along the lines that they were imagining. Yeah. Um, obviously that was just some money to start the organization off. Mm-hmm. And it was after that really that having got the organization going at the beginning, which, and that was me mainly a kind of an outreach process of kind of going around the country talking to people, kind of bringing together, and the, the whole the whole concept of Centre for Women's Justice is really to have a very collaborative approach to mm. uh, legal work. So to work very closely with the, with the front line, with activists, with survivors, uh, and with other experts, uh, including, you know, academics who, who, who are specialists in the subject, um, and others who could input to sort of mm. you know, kind of go forward with a with a you know with strength, and 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 so we did we did a sort of year of outreach around that, and you know and 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 I, the more the more the more the work of the centre developed, the more it, it you know it just seemed to be so so much what everyone wanted. Um, so, so we, you know, since that time, you know, I, I mean, I was just initially on the seed funding working a day a week and still mm-hmm. working my, my other <laughs> practice. Uh, and gradually over time, I managed to get additional funding. We then applied for a legal aid contract so we could actually take cases and get some funding for those cases through mm-hmm. legal aid. We, we so did- what, what are your um, legal aid contracts then at 
uh, CWJ? Uh, well, they're in what's known as called now um, Civil Actions Against Public Authorities and uh, Public Law, which is okay. review kind of yeah. cases. Yeah. Uh, okay. What we don't have is a criminal contract, which is, um, you know, because we do do some, or we would like to do some criminal cases. Yeah. But what, yeah. We've, what we've evolved as an idea is to have... Um, a lawyer's reference panel so we have it nearly 200 yes. on that panel mm -hmm. so as well as so the idea is as well as bringing strategic litigation we also refer cases um to specialist lawyers who have some insight and understanding um yeah. and we also do a lot of work training the front line uh training all the organizations that provide frontline support to victim mm -hmm. survivors and uh and training them specifically in understanding where there are kind of uh, duties that may be enforceable in law of the police or other criminal justice agencies to understand mm. what sort of remedies are available so that, you know, it, it adds to the effectiveness of the advocacy uh, of those organisations, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to hear how it's a two-way process of the advocacy going in and out of the organisation and using the reference panel as well. Yeah because I imagine the demand is pretty high. Well, I mean, it, it, we, we kind of had a policy uh, of not taking inquiries, just just coming into the office, if you like, from mm -hmm. line, uh, inquiries, just because I knew that it would just es escalate, because there is a massive, massive need out there. And, and it's, uh, you know, uh, in fact, we did uh, initially start taking some inquiries and, you know, there's some, uh, and it's very, very hard to turn cases away um, when, when there's something yes. to them. Obviously, yeah. when somebody comes to you, you don't necessarily know. Sometimes you know immediately that it's not a case or it is a case, but often um, it's complex, more complex. Yes. So you yeah. have to spend some time trying to ascertain what um, the, the issues are uh, and uh, in order to determine if there is a case. Now, all mm. of that is, is, is a huge, huge undertaking. And you can have a whole organisation that did nothing but take inquiries. Uh, but So what we do instead is we, we do what's called second-tier inquiries. So we, we, it, it's only when we've trained organisations or when we've worked with frontline organisations. So they already, they kind of are able to filter through a bit more and know where somebody really needs legal advice and where they don't. So mm -hmm. we, we will then assist those frontline advocates to say, well, either here, here's what, what this person now needs to do. Why, you know, you can probably help them with this. Uh, you know, it may be that they just need to, to make a complaint or they need to remind the police officers of their duties under such and such. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes it will be, um, well, actually it looks like, she she needs some help or some advice uh we will see if one of our lawyers on our panel might be able to assist mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes uh it, it may be a particular issue which kind of feeds into some litigation we might want to do ourselves or we might okay want to do ourselves so you've talked about the strategic litigation yeah. that you do yeah um how do you think the, the strategic litigation adds value to feminist activism and, and can you amplify it in a particular way? And you, could you give some examples of that, do you think? 
Yeah, so, I mean, basically, um, you know, feminists, a lot of feminist work around particular issues uh, around violence against women um, will, will involve a whole range of different tactics and strategies. So supposing we're looking at, and the, the, this is an example of something we're doing a lot of work around, the way in which rape is investigated and pros prosecuted. And there will be um, many organisations, there'll be individuals who will maybe want to go out and protest. Uh, there will, you know, people might want to do stuff to do with writing or um, you know, getting stuff out on social media, campaigning in that way. There will be organisations that may be interested in putting pressure on politicians or being engaged in consulting directly with the police or the Crown Prosecution Service to try and influence them to improve their practices. So there's a whole range of different tactics. Now, what, mm -hmm. what strategic litigation can do is, and, and I think this is why it's so important to have lawyers as part of the movement, really, is that we can challenge decisions or practices that, that no amount of political lobbying or promises to change or consultations will necessarily achieve the same mm. result. So um, a very good example of that recently was that we were involved in a challenge around the requests being made by the police and CPS for rape victims and others, sexual assault, um, to provide their telephone uh, digital data downloads. Mm -hmm. so, so you report a rape by a man, you just an acquaintance or something, acquaintance state rape, uh, and uh, the police uh, are then saying, well, we need to now look at your phone to see what's on it. Um, and, you know, needless to say, many uh, people who, can, who report are not happy about having to have their whole personal life and intimate details interrogated. So mm -hmm. a lot of, there's been a lot of a big issue around that. And, and, and mm -hmm. it's exploded in recent years because of the way in which we store our whole lives on our, our mobile data these days. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, um, we brought a, a legal challenge to uh, something called a digital extraction form that had been launched by the, the National Police Chiefs Council and the Crown Prosecution Service and College of Policing, which, which having looked into it, we said was unlawful on a number of grounds. It was unlawful in relation to Data Protection Act uh, it was unlawful in relation to uh, what's known as Article 8, privacy rights, if you like. And it was uh, uh, discriminatory because women, who, who are by far the vast majority of rape and sexual assault, were adversely affected by this practice. And uh, we, we launched the, the litigation. It then had to be stayed because there was something called an information commissioner's report that was being prepared. Uh, and then, and then the, eventually when the report came out, it took much longer than expected. The report basically came to similar conclusions to uh, our analysis of the, the, the deficiencies in, in the form. Um, and 
as it happened around that time by chance there was a court of appeal judgment about another case to do with a rape or a couple of different rape cases where the court offered guidance about the appropriate way to to get disclosure in criminal cases mm -hmm. we yes. don't say obviously we don't say that you, you should be free from disclosing any detail because obviously if somebody's charged with a criminal offence, they are entitled to have information that will help their defence. Yeah. Uh, but that does not and should not extend to a general fishing expedition into the credibility of, uh, you know, a, a per somebody's personal life. It has to be yeah, something absolutely. that is really real and relevant to the rape right mm -hmm. allegations. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, so we brought that challenge, and um, the the um, so when these two, sorry, the information commissioner and the the court of appeal judgment came out, the the we went back to the police and said, right, can you get rid of the form now? And they said, oh well, we're we're in the process now of a consultation about a replacement, which which was clearly going to go on and on for another year or something or several months. In the meantime, they're still using the form. So we said, you've got to withdraw it now or we will continue with our case against you. And they did. And I think without us having the lever of that investigation, yes. uh, they would probably have just carried on doing what they were doing until they were ready to put in the replacement. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so it's fantastic. That's fantastic example. example. That's a good example. Mm. Uh, the other, the other thing, uh, the other case, big, big case that Centre's been involved with, is challenging the Crown Prosecution Service around the prosecution of rape. And mm -hmm. uh, most people will be aware that rape um, prosecutions have dramatically fallen uh, in in the last three years. And we 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 have a lot of evidence and information to show that that. That, that sort of stemmed from the Crown Prosecution Service changing their approach to the prosecution of rape. I won't go into all the details because I'll be here till forever <laughs> as to what exactly that was. Mm. But um, so we sought to, to bring a judicial review challenge. We actually raised a lot of money for it through uh, crowd justice because mm -hmm. everyone's up in arms around yeah. that. And in, in March we had a uh, and we had, and we got a lot of publicity, and we caused huge embarrassment. I think the CPS, the head of you know the DPP, Max Hill, was was very defensive around uh, uh, around the challenge. They did, they completely denied that they'd done anything. They they just they just think that the reason for these mm. dramatic falls, and we're talking about really dramatic falls in three years, and the number of cases prosecuted. You know, so you, you less than one point five percent of cases reported that are charged, which is just that's just shocking. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, uh, and so so we but having the legal challenge, and they uh, you know was was a was a, a, a real story for the media, and mm -hmm. so um, it, it got a lot of publicity, and and it and it was you know although campaigning. And doing other sorts of activism can get publicity. The legal challenge was a really good route into um, getting publicity and, mm. and putting and you know raising concerns in the public domain about it. The, the sad thing was that the hearing that we had, um, 
which was which was for a permission to proceed was um to happen just we were going to have a huge protest outside court um but it was just in the week before lockdown mm. so we had to cancel that although still quite a lot of people came unfortunately the court would not grant us permission we we think com- completely wrongly and, and in fact we're appealing that later this week uh we mm-hmm. have to try and appeal the decision not to grant us a permission but whether or not we get anywhere with a legal case and the reasons why we didn't get permission are I th- I, I think really that that it's just potentially such a big thing to say yes that yes have done this when they've yeah. relatively denied whatever the reasons are uh we we've got the we've got it you know that it's a legal case that's really focused attention and, mm. and has is forcing the cps to change well i'm not surprised it attracted so much media attention because those figures are so stark as well you know so, well good luck like good luck huge, with the appeal huge amount of hope for yeah women who've been through rape mm. also for all the rape crisis groups and everyone who's supporting just to feel like there is something uh, i mean it's obviously was gut-wrenching that we didn't get the permission at that hearing and we should have yeah won. but um it, even so it's better to fight and not win than not fight at all absolutely i might quote you on that later thank you for those examples um it, just moving on to sort of all your cases, all your most notable cases, which case are you most proud of and why? I, I, don't, think, I don't think there's a single one, but I, I think the, I think a um, couple of cases, I think the, the, the case that I, I, I kind of alluded to earlier, which was established around the war boys and the police investigation and established, mm. clearly established in law right up to the Supreme Court, Mm. that there is a duty under the Human Rights Act to conduct an effective investigation. I think that's been a really important case. It's, yeah. it's very impactful. So I agree. You know, that was groundbreaking, actually, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's a very important case. And then, I mean, recently, I suppose, the Sally Challen case, because it was such a difficult case. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly when I first took it on, I thought, There's, I have no idea how on earth you possibly appeal this conviction and then just being able to link it with the, the law passing yeah. control and to use it not just obviously you know first and foremost it was to try and appeal this conviction but also just to to to, to raise so much awareness around coercive control. Yes, yes. So, yeah. yeah no it really did um, raise a huge amount of awareness on that so uh, it was important for lots of reasons, Sally yeah. Challen's case, yeah. yeah. Um, and then moving on to um, Emma Humphrey's case as well. Yeah. Um, can you just briefly explain what that was about and also tell us what it was like working with her? Yeah, so um, Emma, um, so basically before I became a lawyer, because I, um, I didn't start off as a lawyer, I, I, I was sort of working in other areas i had got involved um with some friends feminist activists in setting up organization justice for women that was in a, in 1991 uh and that was um around the time of the sarah thornton case mm-hmm. who remember uh and kiran jitalawalia mm-hmm. uh, and and we'd set up a campaign called justice for women 
which was about what well, you know women who kill violent partners and uh, and we worked closely with South All Black Sisters who were campaigning around Kirinjitalawalia and achieved a lot of there was a lot of publicity and as a result of that we would sometimes receive letters from women in prison and one such letter which came to us a couple of years later after Kirinjit's successful case was from Emma Humphreys, who by that mm-hmm. stage had been serving seven years in prison. She had been only 17 when she was arrested and convicted for the murder of her violent boyfriend, Pimp, really. I mean, she mm-hmm. was yeah. a boyfriend, but really he was, he completely controlled her and he, he, was, he was like a pimp. And he was a pimp, really. And she had, uh, uh, you know, she suffered a whole range of different horrendous uh, experiences. Uh, probably aren't just about every kind of different form of violence against women that you can go through. Not every, but a lot of them. Mm. Um, you know, from childhood, really. And uh, very, you know, and, and, and then she kind of ended up in prostitution uh, aged, you know, 15, 16. And, 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 and she killed, you know, and, and Armitage, Trevor Armitage, the man who was twice her age, who she killed, had been very controlling and abusive of her and so on. And when she got to court, she, she was represented by a um, very inappropriate male solicitor. And she, she, she wasn't really able to talk to him about what had gone on. And when she got to court to give evidence, uh, I think her barrister said to her, you know, asked her this question, you know, well, was it, what was it? Was it the sex or was it the violence? And there's something just clicked and she just thought, I'm not going to speak. But I don't want to talk about my experiences in court. So she didn't speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, particularly given the poor <laughs> work that had been done by her lawyer, she was convicted of, of murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was only 17. Uh, you, she was detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, but it's the same, really, it's a life sentence. Yeah. And, um, and, and it was only after she'd been in prison a couple of years that she began to, to kind of seek justice and start writing about her experiences and stuff. But it took seven years. Uh, I think it was the, the seeing the Sarah Thornton and Kirinjadalawali cases that she, she, she was able to connect it with her own and she wrote to us a very powerful letter about her experiences. Um, now, yeah. when, when we got that letter, none of us were lawyers in the group, where well, we thought we'd go to, we asked Kiranjit's lawyer, who's a man called Rohit Sangvi, uh, whether um, he would take it on. And he said, well, I'll, I can take it on, but I need somebody in Justice Women to do the work with Emma. I need a really, really full detailed account of her, her life and her experiences and what led to her being convicted of murder, uh, sorry, of, of committing the offence. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to volunteer to do that piece of work. Partly, I think, also because I was vaguely wondering whether I might want to move into a change career, really, and move, move into law. And so I, I, I then spent several months visiting in her in prison uh, every other week to take a very, very detailed accounting statement from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
going right through her life and so on. So based on that experience, I'm looking for tips here now, Harriet, I'm sorry. Could you give us a steer maybe on how, as lawyers and also, you know, in other walks of life, how to centre women as clients from a feminist perspective? Well, I, I think it's, I think, I think, you know, you obviously, you have to listen and you have to not judge mm -hmm. uh, and be very clear that you don't judge and you don't blame or you don't, you know, you don't fall into any kind of victim blaming type possible responses that you don't, that you make it, I would say when people are talking about really, really awful, awful things that happen to them, that you don't, you know, kind of not cope with it or express shock or outrage that you just show, you know, that you, you understand that. Occasionally you, you can push and prompt a bit. Like if somebody won't use the word rape, you know, you, you might just say, well, when you had sex that time, was it something that you wanted? So, you, you know, um, mm -hmm. there are different ways in which you approach that because obviously, you know, many women who are undergoing uh, real violence and, and, you know, are perhaps being, you know, raped continuously or having very unwanted sexual practices, um, you know, they may not be able, they won't be able to name it as rape at the time or they may not be able to name their experiences. So don't, let them let them describe it as they wish but also just just probe it gently as to what exactly was going on what, what was happening mm -hmm. so find different ways of, of yeah them. And, and and i think it's important you know when people open up to recognize how distressing and traumatizing it can be and to just to to, to give space for that and to just think about and especially if somebody's in prison and they're going back to their prison cell and they've got no one, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that it can can be quite a damaging thing, the process of doing that and of talking about it. So I think I think I think it's just a question of being incredibly supportive and being able to to ensure that you're there or somebody is there to sort of take the the fallout from that. Yeah. Um, but 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 obviously not to get too over involved uh and to sort of maybe think about other you know because it because it can also take a toll on you i think mm -hmm. uh, and and it can be too much so to, to to try and think about what other forms of support can be there because as a lawyer you're there really to get their account you know for a per particular purpose not to be their support worker if you like yeah right. yeah thank you yeah I will try to put that into practice. Thank you very much. Um, moving on now to sort of more general question on um, legislation. You've already talked about groundbreaking cases and using law in a really interesting way. Just a general question. What, what piece of legislation would you most like to reform and why? There's probably lots, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's any particular piece of legislation that I can think of off the top of my head. What I can talk about is, just because it's fairly current, is that we've mm -hmm. been inputting quite a bit into the domestic abuse bill, which is going through yes. at the moment. And, you know, there, there's some good things about it, but there's a huge uh, amount of things that are missing from it or that are wrong with it as well. So mm -hmm. we've been sort of lobbying uh, alongside 
um, a whole range of different people in the women's sector to try and get amendments through. And a couple of ones that we've been involved in, they're not, not necessarily, I mean, you know, one of, one of the most important ones, in which, we, which we're not, not leading on because there are, are plenty of other organisations who are taking this up, um, mainly, mainly uh, black-led organisations, is around the issue of those with insecure immigration status, not, not, not um, you know, having, having some protection mm-hmm. so that if they report, they're not going to be threatened with potential removal, deportation or whatever, um, mm. or, 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 you know, they don't have funds, they have no recourse to public funds. So there's, so, so, so there's some specific issues around there, which, is, which um, the government have, have, have not dealt with, which are really, really mm-hmm. important. But, but a couple of ones that I've, uh, we, we at Centre have been involved in, which, which um, are really important. Is one is we want, we, would, we want to introduce a new offence called non-fatal strangulation. Yeah. So at, at the moment, um, there is no specific offence of non-fatal strangulation the act of non-fatal strangulation can be prosecuted as an offence of ABH, for example, so occasionally back actual bodily harm. Uh, but often it, it, it isn't uh, picked up by the police or it's only prosecuted as a common assault. And yet we know that in uh, domestic violence, uh, strangulation is, is a real, f- is used uh, quite a lot, particularly as a, as a way of, you know, frightening and controlling mm-hmm. the woman by mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, all it takes is this and, you know, I could kill you. And yeah. it, it keeps her in a place. And it is, it is a very common place and it is a high-risk indicator. So it's one of those things that, you know, when, you, when some, somebody's actually murdered, you, you, you know, you see, you, you look at these cases and you see how many incidents where she may have reported strangulation. And, of course... Mm-hmm often it's, it's never reported yeah so that's one particular offense and the other the other one that I'm I'm very passionate around particularly because of my work from justice women is trying to introduce a defense for women who uh, as, who, are, who commit offenses as a consequence of being abused mm-hmm. and I think that that probably is is something I just think would would make a huge difference because we know that most of the women in prison have suffered domestic violence, child abuse, and so on. And, 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 and many of the crimes committed are committed as a result of being coerced in some way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is no defence other than duress, which is an impossible defence. Yeah. So um, that, that's something that we do feel... Uh, you know, I think it's a really, really important thing. I don't think it will get, although it's it's been proposed as an amendment, I think there's far too much resistance, certainly from the government, around it. But it is something, I think, that, you know, I would really like to change. And I think one of the things I think about, feel about most passionately, in terms of what we do, as well as the failures of policing, is where, when women are... I do think when women are prosecuted, I think they're often prosecuted outrageously and they shouldn't mm-hmm. be prosecuted. And yeah. they're often prosecuted with much greater vigour uh, yes. than the male counterparts because when a woman steps outside the line, she's, she's often monsterised. Um, 
so yeah I, I i think that's an area i feel particularly passionately about thank you yeah thank you for that so working as a, a feminist and a lawyer or a feminist lawyer do, do those worlds collide often or i'm thinking along the lines of cancel culture um, which has been in the news a lot lately and i just wondered what your thoughts were on on that so this is this is basically trying to shut people up for yeah no platforming yeah no all platform. of that yeah uh, i mean it's an an issue which has clearly has legal ramifications in mm -hmm. particular um you know the right to um free speech mm -hmm. uh, and um there are uh, i mean often uh, those sorts of and it also kind of engages on in libel quite often really because the most yeah. horrendous things are said about feminists who 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 you know like witnessed the J.K. Rowling who published something that was um a very um you know just an explanation for why she had some concerns about the trans issue whilst recognizing discrimination mm -hmm. against trans people and who decided to speak out about her abuse, her own abuse. And the, the, the response to that is, was extraordinary. And, and, you know, we see that all the time. And there are potentially legal avenues to challenge sometimes um, the, that kind of um, response. Whether or not the legal avenue is um, tactically the right thing to do will depend on, on individual cases and circumstances. Um, from the sense point of view, um, we haven't particularly chosen to get engaged. I mean, that we sometimes are approached about um, particular cases, and um, so far, I mean, we, it's very limited. You know, the cases we take on directly. Sometimes we we help put somebody, you know, through our legal panel uh, in contact with the lawyer who can take it on. Um, but it's it's it's. I guess it's not um, one. It's not quite central to our work and two because of the way in which the the social media you know the the the, the kind of pylons that happen yeah. we uh, don't particularly want to you know when we're doing so many really really important challenges we don't want to kind of be yeah. have all our energy completely focused on fighting out over attempts to cancel us as well so um we i suppose from the sense point of view, it's just it's it's more just a kind of thinking about things in a you know try trying to assist people without necessarily taking the cases on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, we're almost out of time, um, so I need to get on to a really important question, uh, which is: Have you been watching Mrs. America? I certainly have. <laughs> I've got two more episodes. I'm sort of saving it up yeah <laughs> but it's fantastic yeah it's a really really great program really really interesting i think yeah yeah do, do you remember the era campaign uh, back in the 70s not really no, no. I, mean, I was still uh, i was a teenager then so i think i probably wasn't particularly focused on <laughs> seeing i don't i don't don't particularly remember it no yeah yeah and i just want to know which character do you identify with most <laughs> Uh, I don't think I particularly identify with any of them, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, the, the nearest to uh, a sort of feminism that I espouse is, is Gloria Steinem. Mm -hmm. uh, 
properly, but but she's she's I, I wouldn't identify with with her. She's kind of she's I think out of all the characters, she's portrayed the least sympathetically. Actually, um, I, it may be realistic, I don't know, but um, she comes across as quite flat, really, um, and uh, a, a little insipid, really. Which a bit uh, sitting on the fence, I think, was the yeah, phrase used, I wasn't mean, it? I, yeah. I think she might she might she might she, she i mean that's the problem isn't it when you engage in mainstream politics you know and mm. the extent to which you you then you know kind of i mean that's part of the theme isn't it for the for yes. those, those that were promoting the era is the extent to which you you know kind of make compromises um mm. in order to achieve your objective so it's you know it's, that's what's a fascinating question i think the uh, that you know the, the the really amazing character of obviously in, in, in many ways is Phyllis Shaffley. Mm. Um, and, you know, despite obviously completely, you know, her complete right wing uh, views. Mm. I mean, what's fascinating about the programme, I think, is that it shows how everybody is, um, uh, you know, from the right and from the left are, are shafted by men, basically. <laughs> and <laughs> That's, uh, uh, you know, that's, you know, whether, whether yeah. you choose to try and please men mm-hmm. or you, you challenge them, you get shafted by them, basically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it shows that really well. So it's, It uh, does. I love that line that, that Jill, when she's in the bar with Phyllis and, you know, she says, well, if you, that's fine. If you want to climb on the shoulders of men, just be aware they're looking right up your skirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. it's just a beautiful moment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting program, and uh, yeah, good. I'm glad you've been enjoying it. So just to just to wrap up, then, um, what do you think is the most pressing issue for feminism in the UK at the moment? I think uh, we are in. We're always in the midst of a backlash. I think, (laughs) yeah, at any time. Um, I think, uh, you know, in a way feminism has achieved so much and it has got such a wide appeal it's really brought so many people on board we, you know back in you know the second wave da- days it was a much smaller movement apart from mm. as, a, as a sort of very very reformist kind of political era type movement but you know in terms of a, a more radical movement i think it it, it, it has a huge appeal but I think that's why we're facing such a horrendous backlash at the moment. And I think mm. that there's the, I mean, I, the fear that has been created by the council culture that you mentioned earlier, uh, at which, which, and the attempts to silence women is hugely challenging. Uh, and the attempts to um, degenderize everything as well, uh, so that, so that we, we stop talking about violence against women uh, and, 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 and take away an analysis which shows um, that, that women are oppressed as a, as a sex class, in a sense, mm-hmm. by, by the change in language that, that has come about. I, I think that's probably the most, most kind of pressing issue is to find ways of resisting that mm-hmm. and enabling women, you know, the, the women forever have been put off becoming feminists. And there's an obvious reason why, <laughs> because it's mm. too challenging. 
and there are mm. different ways in which 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 um, women are challenged. Uh, are women are you know it, you know men approach you know men who who are threatened by feminism will approach um, how to challenge. And in the old mm. days, it was calling somebody an ugly dyke or whatever. Uh, 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 and in in these days, it's it's by accusing uh, accusing you know feminists of being bigots. Uh, mm. And it's and it's outrageous. But, and I, mm. and I and I also despair of the fact that half the population seem to have abandoned rational rational thinking. Really, mm. uh, I just I don't, I don't I don't understand. You know, we've kind of we've walked into nineteen eighty four. Yeah. Uh, you know, where where you speak the opposite of the truth all the time, and assert yeah. it as the truth. So it's very, it is very frightening um, times, I think. But I think also, what's heartening is that more and more women are speaking out. Um, yes, and we just have to hold on to that and hold on to solidarity and hope that rational thought will one day reappear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. It's surprising with people like <laughs> Trump in power, is it really? Uh, no. The Brexit stuff that, that 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 we're living in these times, really. But yes, yeah. well, Phyllis Schlafly paved the way for Trump, didn't she? So uh, yeah, yeah. all the way back, <laughs> all the way back to that again. Harriet, thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated it and really enjoyed talking to you, and to um, you well. really appreciate you sharing your legal and feminist experience with us. Thank That's you. A pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Thanks.